Welcome back to another episode of the Casual Tuesdays Book Club. This week I'm talking about The Mark on the Wall by Virginia Woolf. That can be found online at AmericanLiterature.com. You know how to use Google, I figure I can stop doing that bit every time. Uh, yeah, you can figure it out from there. Unfortunately, there's some typos in this copy, uh, and it looks like uh, at upenn.edu, there's the link for a full text that might be a little bit better off, but I know, I figured it out. It was fine. Okay, let's get started. So far, this has been my favorite story I've read for the podcast, and I had to reread it a couple of times because the first two times I was just kind of marveling at it and I was lost and amazed, and so my notes weren't really that helpful. Now, after a couple of read-throughs, I was able to work through some of the really incredible lyricism and have some more concrete notes, which I'll use as a framework before I inevitably end up just fanboying out for a little bit. Now, a quick note about the lyricism. Wolf says so much throughout the piece and delivers it with just hypnotic lyricism, and I love that, but the lyricism is also part of why it took me a couple of reads to come up with talking points. So... Um, I'm going to try to save you some of the trouble of reading through again and cut through the lyrical prose, but as a result, I'm going to end up restating some things from the text. The first thing I want to discuss is Wolf's bits about art, which can get pretty meta. Wolf is known, among other things, as a great literary impressionist. Literary impressionism is the written offshoot of the painting movement impressionism from guys like Monet. The idea behind impressionism was that there wasn't a sharp, concrete reality, and instead there was only our perception of it. That's painting in broad strokes, but that's kind of the gist of it. Yeah, that was an intentional Impressionism pun. I feel pretty good about it, which now makes me feel a little bit bad. Pretty sure that's what like hard stimulant drugs are like. You feel really good, and then you crash. And that's the same as pretentious puns. Anyway, good stuff. Uh, okay, literary Impressionism. If you're struggling with this as a concept, look at the afterlife bit from this story. It's highly visual imagery without any definitive object, and it sounds just like the instructions for an Impressionist painting, with just kind of dabs of color everywhere. So that imagery is a really accessible way into literary Impressionism. There are other qualities in this piece that make it Impressionistic, from the way the ideas flow so quickly, it becomes kind of this blurred and fuzzy uh, text, and the way that there's these kind of tangential orbits that spin off a central theme. And what it really is, is it comes down to is it's about perception. I'm going to talk more about this later, so I don't want to spoil it too much. But that's kind of, again, I'm, you know, I want to give you the general idea. Right now, I want to focus on two meta bits that Wolf includes, which are direct critiques of art. The second one, kind of in the order of the story, the second one is about the future novelists. And Wolf says that they're going to leave reality out of their works and that words are enough to kind of ground the piece. To me, in the immediate space, this is an endorsement of Impressionism in, this, in the idea that we're going to leave reality behind. But also, this was written just under 100 years ago. And so now I know more about the future novelists that Wolf is referring to than she does. And so I have to ask, is this an accurate claim? And in my experience, yeah. If Impressionism is about perception, the rise, or I guess continuation, of unreliable narrators or biased narrators is huge, and it's a regular aspect of, liter of literature. Then also, the 60s drug culture produced people like Hunter S. Thompson, who is a favorite of the podcast, but he had a notoriously skewed perceptions. Um, and probably a better example would be like Train Spotting by Irvine Welsh, where there's kind of, you get a, a skewed view of things based on uh, the narrator's uh, drugs habits. <laughs> 
So does Wolf's claim hold up to all lit- of contemporary literature? No, but there are certainly impressionistic elements that have kind of become, that were once novel, uh, I should use a different word, once kind of new techniques, um, but are now kind of tried and true. And the underlying philosophy of impressionism still has a great deal of appeal. There's one qualifier that I want to include in this, and that's something a professor once told me. He said that artistic movements can fade, but usually they never fully die. In the context of that statement was, uh, I was in his office, we were talking about, and I was saying that nature writing is kind of stuck in Romantic era philosophy, while the, rela- the rest of literature has gone through modernism and into postmodernism. I bring that up that anecdote just to say that artistic trends can linger. Though, to Wolf's credit, I think that Impressionism's role in contemporary literature is more substantive than just, you know, a lingering trend. But, you know, I wanted to throw that out there because I'm a dick. I don't know. Seems like it seemed important at the time. Anyway, whatever. Okay. Finally, the second meta thing that Wolf says is actually through the voice of the previous owner of the house who said that art should have ideas behind it. That statement stuck out to me right away, but it wasn't until the third time that I read it that I realized that this statement is like the departure point or the catalyst for the body of the story. After that statement, the imagery and the narrative veer away from reality, the room and the mark, you know, except for these brief, you know, circlings where it goes back and talks about the mark and then, you know, talks about trains and stuff for a while. So, uh... The story gets this crazy stream of consciousness imagery and this philosophizing by the narrator. So if you think about this statement, that art should have ideas behind it as a catalyst, and I use catalyst in like the scientific sense, where it doesn't start the reaction, the mark did that, but it accelerated the reaction. That's what catalysts do in science terms. Then, anyway, so you think about that, the story is a meta-analysis or critique or demonstration of art, and she's using the rest of the story to talk about she's kind of setting it up so this guy has a point and then she's using the rest of it as a counterpoint to talk about what is art all right next up i want to talk about the structure of the prose first on a micro scale and then on a macro scale on micro scale i noticed that there are a lot of long sentences filled with the positives and tangents pretty much This stylistic choice can be kind of hard to grapple with because there's so much information coming so quickly. And the tangential nature of some of the content reflects this stream of consciousness narrative, but the actual structure in itself also reinforces Wolf's ideas. The best example is the bit where Wolf is comparing life to being on the train. The images are blurred and incomplete or disjointed, and you just end up moving too fast. By making her sentences long with lots of stuff, she is taking this idea to a structural level so that we, as readers, can experience the effect that she's describing. This is what I was alluding to earlier when I was talking about perception a little bit. I think that Wolf kind of wants the reader to be overwhelmed, and you're not supposed to get it all the first time through, or that's what I've been telling myself. But anyway, the fact of the matter is that these long rambling sentences have that same effect where things are blurred and move really quickly. And that's one of Wolf's key points. Often, these rambling sentences contain lists. And Wolf does some really cool stuff with lists that I want to—I really appreciate and I just wanted to talk about as well. First, she builds some of her lists starting with minute detail and building outwards towards an idea or concept. Look at the list of things to be laughed into a dustbin or things to worship, for examples. 
This technique is cool for a couple of reasons. One, by starting with the minute and the tangible, the reader has an anchor. So there's something like, there's something that the reader can recognize. And then two, by moving up the chain from, chain from tangible to conceptual things that are all united by a common theme, Wolf is able to change scale and scope really, really well. This is one of the things I really like about some of Bukowski's writing, and I think I've talked about it in the podcast I did about one of his poems earlier. But the ability to zoom in and out from the cosmic to the mundane is really cool when it's done correctly, and Wolf's lists are doing it very well. The third reason I like this technique is that the list builds an explicit or implicit equality between the components. So, for example, mahogany and then gods and devils are all the same. And that's a cool, thought-provoking idea that challenges our preconceptions of order, and just that jarring juxtaposition helps kind of force that. All right, now on a macro scale, I noticed something interesting on my third read-through, and that is the tense, the, excuse me, the tense changes during the piece. The introduction is in past tense, and the narrator is trying to remember the mark on the wall and when they were, when she was looking at it. And then the rest is in present tense. This could be explained by saying that the narrator just kind of dove into the memory and much of the story is just the reader kind of along for the experience through the memory. And that kind of starts a cool dialogue about the difference between memory and reality. But I'm not trying to go into that right now. What throws this idea off anyway is at the end, the narrator starts asking these questions. And it's not that she just loses her train of thought. It's more dramatic than that. And it seems like she's suddenly been woken from this dream. And then the last sentence is back in past tense. And so it's really hard to justify if this is a memory, how could she remember all of that? Or was she rem like improvising in present tense off of the memory from past tense? It's kind of confusing. So this is going to be this week's call for participation. So if you have any ideas, if you have any ideas, excuse me, about why the tense changes and what you think that means, go ahead and shoot me a text. Okay, now for the penultimate topic. I want to go over some of the imagery. Wolf absolutely slays imagery in this story. And to be honest, to get my analysis kind of rolling, I just read through and I made a list of all the images as they came up. Overall, the story is just filled with fantastic images that are odd and beautiful and just just amazing. Uh, that's this is some fanboying right here. Anyway, I have some kind like concrete ideas, but damn, uh, imagery in here, what a rush. Okay. I'm going to start specific and work my way broad. I'm going to start start by going over a couple of my favorite images and what I thought about them, and then I'll move on. Okay, first, the train life metaphor image ends with the reader kind of being spit out into the asphodel meadows like a parcel at the post office. This is great because it's conflating the immortal and Edenic and divine with the mundane. So asphodel meadows are part of Elysium, which is the Greek afterworld. I had to look that up. Don't, you know, I'll be honest. Anyway, the comparison and the image is kind of this trippy change up. And the juxtaposition plays at the significance of everything. You know, the divine could be mundane and I suppose vice versa. The mundane could be divine. Or it's all just kind of equally neutral. It's probably more accurate. <laughs> anyway. Another image that I particularly enjoyed was the old archaeologist. 
this because this wasn't just an image this was kind of a vignette within the story and it was that vignette was sad and funny and thought-provoking and i'm going to talk more about it later and its significance uh but the fact that it had a whole storyline made it stand out from some of the others and it was a great storyline um anyway the last two i'm just going to kind of do is brief shout outs one the ants carrying the straw and then abandoning it loved it because you're incorporating insects and that has this kind of anti-resolution without a good reason and i love that sort of thing and lastly the very first one is the image of the knights and she hates because it's an old fantasy and the idea of being tired of old fantasies is such a great character nuance because the fantasy in of itself adds character and you know you think about what this person imagines and then the idea of being tired of imagining that is just a really it's really subtle but it's really great okay some more concrete stuff uh there are three repeated images and repeated images always help decode uh a written piece so they are the asphodel meadows which i already talked about then we've got the Whitaker's Almanac and Table of Precedence and Dust. So the second one is another one I just looked up and learned it's kind of just like an almanac as they are. Uh, it has articles and facts about pretty much everything. And that includes the Table of Precedence, which basically just delineates the succession to the crown uh, for England. And this is repeated image because it's great because it's a singular object that embodies the idea of concrete knowledge and order which um the wolf is opposing throughout this um the fact that it is so specific i think adds a little a degree of absurd excuse me i just burped a uh, degree of absurdism and I, th I love that element because to have this one it seems so insignificant and to give it this proper name uh but anyway it really helps i think it helps the cause by making it the ideas within the almanac seem just ridiculous. And finally, the dust. The dust gets a great description, so I'm just going to quote it. All right, quote, The dust which, so they say, buried Troy three times over, only fragments of pots utterly refusing annihilation, end quote. Damn. Great shit. Uh, later on, in the pleasant botany thoughts, uh, the flower is growing out of the dust, and then after that, there's also the dust bin. So dust is kind of always around as this symbol of ultimate death, but it's not as sinister as T.S. Eliot would have it or would portray it. Uh, it's kind of, you just accept it and you kind of move on with it. It's very cool. Another thing to note, uh, another concrete idea, is that the final kind of dreamy imagery is about the life cycle of the tree. And I wanted to call attention to the fact that this ends up circling back to the starting point with people in a room smoking cigarettes and there's furniture and stuff. So even though the narrator's interrupted the and you know that train of thought gets kind of derailed, the imagery has actually come full circle in the story. Uh, and so that's one of those things where it's kind of a subtle cue to the reader that they're coming back down and they've kind of they're kind of grounded, even though it has this supposed interruption, it has already cycled back to the starting point. Finally, my broad idea for these images is that these crazy splashes and fragments of stories are intentionally chaotic. All the color and all the stuff uh, the blurs, it's again, it's like Wolf saying that life is like being on a fast train. So now we have the structure that mirrors that, but also the imagery um, as eclectic 
and random as it seems, is mirroring this idea that life moves very quickly and is kind of blurry. All right, my last topic for today. Wolf makes a lot of bold philosophical statements. Some authors can't get away with editorializing like that at all, much less like this, but Wolf, frankly, kills it. There's a lot of philosophical, wow, I can't talk today, philosophical stuff in this piece that I can't get into. I'm going to skip the stuff about freedom and personal image, and I'm going to focus on the stuff, some big picture stuff that relates to Impressionism. And I want to, I'm just going to go in the order that these statements appeared. I did the same listing thing as for the imagery, as I did that with the philosophical statements too. Okay. Anyway, first up, we get this notion of inaccuracy of thought. And the like kind of the punch behind that is people are inherently flawed in their beliefs about the way things are <laughs> um okay moving on second we get the desire to retreat from the surface with its hard separate facts uh, and this one's a little more interesting i think and it says basically that wolf prefer the narrator prefers the this kind of muddle that is and you know it's comforting to them okay the next is the the old archaeologist story there's the list of things at the museum and the narrator ends it by saying you know nothing is proved nothing is known and this takes that first point a step further where like we can't have any definitive notions about reality Finally, the last one in the sequence is comes during the, the worshiping sequence where you wake up from the nightmare and worship things. Um, and there's comfort in the solidity and the tangible things that prove that other people exist. Now, this comfort seems to contradict other ideas, but it, I think it ends up actually building the case because, first of all, it's not the narrator saying this. It's, it's the, you know, quintessential identity list one does this thing. So, like, one worships. And... I think it's a critique of that, and it sh- comes at a time of weakness in the middle of the night with all these nightmares and shows kind of this degree of humanity and how scary, <coughs> excuse me, how scary letting go of reality can be in this way can be. So what's the point? Well, if nothing is real and we accept that, the only things that we can say for sure are our perceptions, and that's Impressionism. So I said I'd circle back to the archaeology story, and I think that the that is really key point um, where the list it's all these disparate images, or I mean, from different time periods, and it doesn't prove anything that the reader or that the narrator can tell, and that idea that there's no firm reality is really important to impressionism. Okay, thank you for tuning in. I really enjoyed this episode. The more I think about this story, the more I just marvel at it. And there's so much there that I didn't even get to. I barely scratched the surface on this one. So please reread it. I'm sure you'll find something new and something interesting. And text me when you do. Uh, I'd love to keep talking about it, um, you know, beyond the podcast. Anyway, the music for this episode was Third Planet by Modest Mouse. Uh, It's kind of just one of my favorite Modest Mouse songs. Uh, To tie it in, I have to do these tie-ins so that I can use the song. It's part of the creative commons or some like licensing thing. Anyway, all right. (laughs) So to tie it in, um, Modest Mouse does a good job with scaling, where they kind of go from mundane to cosmic. 
Um, in this song, they have a divine presence that seems really casual. The third plant's being watched by an eye in the sky. Um, and you just shake his hand at the end. Um, and by mixing up images and melodies, they have that same thing where they kind of have chaotic yet cohesive peace. Most importantly, though, the reason it had to be a Modest Mouse song is that the name Modest Mouse comes from this story. Quote, I wish I could hit upon a pleasant track of thought, a track indirectly reflecting credit upon myself, for those are the pleasantest thoughts, and very frequent even in the minds of modest mouse-colored people." End quote. Wow. Next week, I'll be discussing Mark Twain's essay, How to Tell a Story, so I'm sure that'll be pretty meta, and that is also available on AmericanLiterature.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and here is some more Modest Mouse. I got this thing that I consider my only art of thought.